Well, good morning. So, um, I feel like I say this every Sunday, but <laughs> I have a thing about, about preaching that I, I never want to preach without praying. Um, so I know we just prayed, but um, if you guys would just pray, even just for me and with me during this, this time, um, you could do that. Father, we thank you, God. God, I thank you for bringing us in this room. God, I thank you for the ways that you've spoken to me over this last week and in the weeks before, God, just leading to this moment. And God, I just, I ask that in this um, next 45 minutes or so, God, that you just transform the words that I say, that, that they might become your words to, to each of our hearts. And God, I ask that you interrupt any agenda that I have that is not yours. And that you would only let your words be said today. That my inadequacies won't, won't end there, God, but that you would take, take this opportunity to speak to each one of our hearts. And Father, I pray for myself, but not selfishly, God, but I pray for myself that you speak to my heart, that you convict me, you break me this morning. So that that might overflow into the ears and hearts of every single one of us here this morning. I ask that your word be heard. And Father, I pray for the churches throughout Riverside. Not just bridges, but God, every church here that, that preaches your gospel, God, I pray for those communities. I pray for the pastors who are preaching this morning. God, that you just would work a movement across Riverside that demonstrates that you are king, that you are God. You are worthy of being heard, and you are worthy of being loved. Thank you, Father, and I just pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, one thing I know I love to do is to take um, random conversations with people <laughs> and turn them into spiritual conversations. Um, it was months ago at this point in time, but I was um, at Subway with someone. As a young man, he just uh, graduated high school and he's trying to figure life out. And I had, I had met him at a car wash and we had connected a number of different times and I kind of helped him get through a number of problems, but I was checking in with him. And somewhere in this conversation, he was talking about some of the discontents that he was having in life and the frustrations. And uh, out of that, I just decided to bring in the God topic. And I asked, do you believe in God? And I could see him just kind of surprised at the transition and the conversation, but he looks back at me and he says, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. And I say, well, Why? Why do you believe in God? Not just as a default answer, but why do you believe in God? And then he, he would begin to explain uh, a number of what I call intuitions. Intuitions that I think so many uh, people have about why they believe in God. Where did we all come from? Why am I here? Right, there's, this, there's this feeling, that I, there's a sensed presence of, of divine that I can experience and I can feel. Right? So he's going on and talking about these um, intuitions. That, as I said, so many of us have. And then I, and I change and I transition that a little bit. And I ask, so who is this God that you believe in? And this is where it starts to get a little weird. <laughs> he begins to give these descriptions about God that honestly sounded like a spiritual force from a Disney movie. There's odd ideas about this, you know, mystical presence. This, you know, bubbly, fuzzy feeling that we have. And then as he continued to, to, honestly, I'm going to be honest, ramble on, 
it's, it began to it sound very familiar with like uh, the force from Star Wars. Oh, it's this mystical presence that it just binds us all together and it works in us and it moves us. And I'm listening to him and I'm recognizing this is a thought that he's never had before. This is a question he's never wrestled with before. He's never gone beyond this, well, there is some kind of a God up there, but now let me think about who this God is. He's never had to take that step, answer that question before in his life. And so now all of a sudden, here he is trying to figure it out, talking to a guy who's asking me about God, and he doesn't know why I'm asking about God. And he's making up an answer as he's coming along with it. Now to turn, the, turn that table a little bit now, I'm going to ask you. If you were caught in public... And somebody asks you, who is God? Who do you believe God is? What would you say? And I'm talking about like, you know, what would you call like an elevator pitch, right? You got 30 seconds, you got 60 seconds to answer a simple question, who's a God? What would you say? Would you, would you get beyond a, a Wikipedia entry level of, of an answer? Would you just, you know, state a bunch of facts about what you know about God? A God is loving and he's just and, and he sent his son to this earth who died for us and he loves you and he wants to, and he wants to have you forever in, in heaven with him. Like, would you get beyond that? Would you be able to get beyond that? Would you be able to explain this, this is kind of a more personal relationship with God? Specific qualities about God, characteristics about God that you have seen, that you have experienced. That you've seen in other people's lives. That you've seen in scripture. How would you answer that question? Who is God? What is he like? Why does God matter? Right? Why, why should you care about God? Why should you care about his word? Why should, you, why should you care about the things that he cares about? Are these, are these, are these questions you can, you can clearly and simply articulate in a way that's personal? As I said, not just like a Wikipedia definition. Um, it, it's interesting, very few people, and, and this hasn't changed. Well, sorry, let, let me clarify this. But um, Very few people doubt God's existence. So if you look, look inside uh, the, the, the tradition of America, even within the tradition of America, the... the what we have assumed is the percentage of people who are truly atheistic, that number has hardly changed over the years. It has hardly changed over the years. But what has changed, what has gone up and down, is what people believe about God. And today, probably now more than ever, people are more unsure about who God is. Within America, that's, that's, that's a serious place of disagreement amongst, amongst Americans. Who do you think God is? What has he said? What does he care about? What is, what is true to him? I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Big fan of C.S. Lewis. I, I would say he is a, um, a huge contributor to, to saving my faith. The words that he's written over the years. But he's a great philosopher, a great thinker. Uh, if you're, I'm sure everyone here is probably familiar with him. Maybe you haven't read something about him, but maybe you at least heard his name. Um, but there's a story about C.S. Lewis that uh, maybe not everyone does know about. It's a story that he experienced a great loss in his own personal life. Um, there's, there's a number of, there's actually two movies, I think, uh, about it. Uh, Shadowlands. Um, one is with Anthony Hopkins, fabulous movie. Um, but I'm not, it won't explain the whole story about it. But uh, essentially, you have this emotionally guarded, highly intellectual human being who was kind of convinced for the early part of his life that he would never marry, that he would never fall in love, that his marriage was his books, and his love was, was, was thinking and thought and academia. And he finds himself falling in love with a woman uh, um, unsuspectingly. And then he, he, uh, he actually he had married her for legal reasons, but then eventually really married her for, for romantic reasons because this was somebody that he had become committed to, saying this is somebody who I really want to be with. And it was a few short years later she dies. And he finds himself stricken with this, this sense of loss, the sense of pain. 
And now you have this great philosopher, this great thinker, apologist, uh, someone who's written a book called The Problem of Pain. And he gives this highly intelligent academic answer about why does God allow bad things to happen. And now all of a sudden, he's in a crisis he never dreamed of. He's experiencing pain that he never dreamed of. And he writes this, this, this uh, I guess you could call it diary, a diary. I don't think he intended it to really be a diary, but it was just a place for him to express his thoughts. And today you can actually find that published. It's called The Grief Observed. It's probably one of the most powerful books by Lewis to read. Because it's a very humanistic view. A very just kind of down-to-earth uh, uh, way of dealing or him just kind of wrestling with, with, with pain. I actually think it's great to read his academic answer, Problem of Pain, and read right after The Grief Observed and kind of contrast the two. But it's an honest wrestle with who God is. Um, And all of a sudden, Lewis, in the midst of this pain, is asking himself, can I really be confident of my belief about who God is? The pain that he's all of a sudden faced with, he's now wrestling with his idea, with his view, with his understanding about his beliefs about God. But it's interesting, throughout the book, um, he never doubts the existence of God. He never doubts the existence of God. He, in fact, just doubts the kind of God uh, that exists. And these are some uh, exact words that he wrote. He says, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. He's wondering, who is God really? Is God really good? Is God really worth worshiping? Do I really know this God? The God of the Bible? Is that really the God that I worship? Do I really have reason to trust him with my life? I can't but help uh, but think of the story of Elie Wiesel. Another, um, he lived around the same time as Lewis. I guess he would have been a bit younger. Um, he was a young Jewish boy who survived the Nazi concentration camp. And he write a, a very, wrote a very famous book, probably many of us have read it, called The Night. And in the book, he describes this journey through this horrific event of Hitler trying to annihilate the Jewish people uh, within, within um, Hitler's boundary. And in this story, you, you, you're, you're watching this young boy, you're, you're reading about this young boy who's seeing his family be killed, his parents being killed. You're just seeing so much of those who he loved being annihilated. And it's just this awful event in history. And it's very graphic. Very graphic stories about, you know, uh, Nazis ripping, you know, gold, gold uh, uh, teeth out of, out of Jews before they throw them into incinerate, camp, incinerate chambers. It's just dark. But the whole book is just about this, this journey uh, through this Nazi concentration camp. And these are some of the words that he wrote. Because he's, he's here and he's observing all of these Jews, and some of them are very faithful to God. Even though that they are starving, that they are that they are being beaten, and that they are looking at their oncoming death, they still worship God. And this is what he says: He says some of the men spoke of God. All right, these these men who continue to worship God, His mysterious ways, the sins of the Jewish people, and the redemption to come. As for me, I had ceased to pray. Uh, I concurred with Job. I was not denying his existence but I doubted his absolute justice. And and even later in life, Elie Wiesel was asked, do you believe in God? And he says, yeah. And then he would would be, do you believe in the Jewish faith? And kind of unsure, but he certainly doubted the ultimate goodness of God. He just wasn't convinced. Um, Life has a way of making us question God. Life has a way of making us question God. If that's a sentence you are uncertain about, 
or you feel like, well, not in my life, I would, I would beg you to look around. For so many of us, there's so many things that go on, so many hard, tragic things. It's just as a way of making us question God. And, and, and here's, here's the important part. Without a good answer to the question, who is God? You will be tossed around in your faith. You will be tossed around in your faith every time some kind of a crisis comes in your life. Every time some kind of a challenge or some kind of a trial or some kind of a hardship comes in your life or in the life of those around you or some horrific event takes place across the world, your faith will be tossed around if you can't answer who God is in a sincere and honest and real way. Wiesel was very young when he saw this intense tragedy in his life. He never really had a good or developed view uh, of God. Lewis, on the other hand, um, sure there was a season I mean, he, you know, in which he was wrestling with it, but here's a guy who's much more developed in his faith, had a clearer understanding of who God is. Uh, and he, he came to believe and he had a sense of confidence about it as well, uh, that even in the pain, God was actually good. He knew that. He became convinced of that. And even in this season of pain, he can recognize that. He could process his pain. He knows that even in pain, God is doing something good. He is redeeming and he is restoring. He could recognize that there is something wrong here in this world. And the fact that my wife, whom I love to die, doesn't necessarily disrupt the truth that God is good. The fact that there's actually something wrong in this world, um, for, for Lewis, what it told him is that there must have been a right way it was supposed to be. And that God is taking it, that there's something wrong, and he's in this process of making it something right. That is redemption. That's restoration. Lewis could figure that out. Um, and so I want us to understand that, that God must sometimes dig deep in our pain. In the midst of hardship, God sometimes might dig deep in our pain in order to heal us. In order to heal us in a a more profound way. The process of redemption sometimes hurts. It can sometimes hurt. Uh, Lewis actually had a kind of a funny remark about this. He said, uh, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good. Have they never heard or have never been to a dentist? Um, who likes going to the dentist? Seriously, right? Like, does anyone like going to the dentist? I don't know anyone. I've never met anyone who's like going to the dentist unless, you know, they, they've gone for just simple checkups. And then it's at very best, it's just like, well, you know, it's whatever. But nobody wakes up in the morning of an appointment and is thinking, man, I'm so excited. To have my mouth just scraped, just pried open, and my teeth just scraped and scraped and scraped and power drilled. I'm just so excited for that. Nobody thinks that way, right? Nobody thinks that way. Nobody thinks uh, about the joy that comes after. Yet, Yet we have dental insurance, don't we? We go to the dentist. We pay a lot of money to the dentist when we have uh, serious things to do. Um, I personally have a lot of bad experiences with the dentist. Uh, most of it comes from a car accident that took place about 14, 15 years ago. I first got my license. Um, I had a lot of surgeries. A lot of surgeries. It's kind of corrective surgeries both uh, within my mouth, and my, within, my, within my bite, and also actually just on my face. I've had plastic surgery a number of times just shortly after the, the surgery. Uh, sorry, shortly after the accident. Uh, but when I think of the, the, the dentist, I think of pain. I really do. I think of pain. Because even, you know, 15 years later, I'm actually, I still have issues that are coming up because of this car accident. I have three fake teeth because of this. One of them is just uh, fairly recent. I had a new tooth just recently put in. Uh, but that was ultimately, uh, uh, um, uh, it was ultimately an effect of this accident that took back years ago. Um, even if it isn't surgery, though, when I go into the dentist, I don't like going. I don't like people dealing with my mouth anymore. It's just too much pain has happened. Right, even like a 30-minute cleaning is like trauma to me. Right, I dread it. Um, when I had my, this last implant done, uh, I went and w- w- met with an oral surgeon, 
and he was just inspecting, just kind of looking at the, that root of the tooth that was, that was dead, and he was kind of checking the, the gums and stuff around it. You know that little, like, spiky tool they have that is kind of like, poke you? I don't know. Why, why do they just poke you? What, what are they doing when they just poke you? But they poke me, and I reacted really intensely. And then the, and then the oral surgeon, he just looks at me, and he just smiles. He's like, ho, 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 ho. And he's like, looks like someone's had some work done. Like he could see just in the way that I reacted to that little useless pokey thing that I, I don't, I've, had, I've had surgery. I've had enough surgery to know that this is bad. This is going to suck. But amidst all the pain, I know dentists are good. I know that. It hurts. Um, it's often this pain, though, is a part of the healing process that a dentist brings. I know that there's something wrong up here, that if there's a broken tooth, there's something, there's something painful that's going on that's, that's there, and I know that it's going to take more pain in order for it to be, to be healed, in order for it to be made right. And as much as I don't like going to the dentist, I know they're good. I appreciate what they do. But think about this. Imagine I had no idea. I was completely ignorant to what a dentist was. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they did. I didn't really even know why they did anything. All I know is I sit in a chair and I feel pain. Right? If you had absolutely no understanding, no memory, no concept of what a dentist was, of what a dentist's chair would be nothing but pain in your mind. You would sit down and they would power drill in your mouth and you'd be thinking, why am I doing this and why am I paying you money to do this? Likewise, you would even think about, about toothaches, cavities. You wouldn't understand it. Why do I brush my teeth? Why should I bother flossing? You wouldn't understand any of the rhythm of, of oral care if you had no idea what a dentist was. You wouldn't understand these things. But, but, but that's the thing. A proper view of a dentist, when you understand, man, brushing your teeth, that keeps that pain away. You get that. It puts that pain in your chair in perspective. A proper view of, of, of a dentist puts all that other pain, all the other, other rhythms of, of care, oral care, in proper perspective. I think that's how many non-Christians understand the Christian view of God. They don't understand who God is. They don't have any proper view of who God is. And so everything else is left curious uncertain. They don't understand who, who God is, and so they don't understand why we pray to a God who lets bad things happen in the world. So, so many things within the rhythm of Christian life just doesn't make sense. How can you possibly believe that God is good when there are so many who are starving across this earth? How can you possibly believe that God is loving when he allows people like rapists and murderers to live. How can you possibly believe? Why would you, how can you possibly believe that, that God is just in such an unjust world? Why do you spend hours reading your Bible and praying? Why? Doesn't make sense. Why run to God when you can run to anything else in life? This thing you can't see. Why run to, to God when, 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 when you can run to anything else in your life? Anything else that seems to bring security? Understand, a proper view of God puts the rest of, the Christ, of Christianity in, proper, in the right perspective. A proper view of God makes, makes, helps us make sense of everything else we do as Christians. And that's valuable not just for us, so that we understand why we pray and why we should be committed to prayer and why we should be committed to the study of Scripture, the memorization of Scripture, tending church, evangelizing, all the practices within, within the Christian life. It helps us understand why we do those things, but it also helps those around us understand it as well. When we have a clear articulation of who God is and we're able to, we're able to communicate that in a way that they understand, they understand why prayer is so important. But as long as you have a poor view of God, Christianity will never make sense. As long as you have a poor view of God, Christianity is never going to make sense. The practices, the rhythms of Christianity, none of it is going to make sense. 
But I think because Christianity is not just this little isolated thing in our life, I would expand all this to say that a proper view of God helps us put the rest of our life in the right perspective. It helps us to understand our pain. It helps us to understand why there's highs and there's lows. It helps us to understand um, conflict and crisis and how to deal with it. Proper view of God puts the rest of life in the right perspective. That's why I ask us this morning, who would you say God is? What's your perspective of God? What's your view of God? If you were asked by a stranger, how easily would you be able to communicate that? How useful would you be to them to help them understand Christianity? Not just what they can find on Wikipedia. All right, a lot of non-Christians understand the very basics of Christianity, about what they can find on a Wikipedia. What, what do you believe about God that goes beyond that? What do you know about God? What have you experienced about God that goes beyond that Wikipedia entry? If you were answering the question, who is God, what would be your sources? What would be your evidence? What would be the things that you point to? I'd say that the two best things that we as Christians can ever point to about, about who God is, is going to be Scripture and history. And when I say history, I don't just mean, uh, a, a, you know, history of the world. Part of what I mean is our history. Now, but, but history also may be in the lives of others we know. History in the life of the church. Both, both the, the, the invisible church, the one that's been around for, since, since, since Jesus, and also the visible church. What we see here in the life of Bridges and the, the churches within Riverside and within America, we can be able to point and see, like, what's the history? Where has God been in that? What do we know about God because of what we see in the history of, of, of those who have trusted in him? Uh, what has my history been with God? How would you answer that? What has been your history with God so far? Where has God been in your life so far? But, but an important detail is that Scripture gives us the best means of interpreting the experiences that we've had. See, Scripture gives us the means of being able to interpret of the ways that we've experienced God, the way that God has moved in our life. It becomes the lens for us to make sense of God in our life. Because it's easy. If you mine a scripture from our life, it's very easy to come up with some wacky conclusions about who God is. But as we study and we deepen our understanding of scripture, it helps us make sense of how is God working in our life. I'm sure many people have done this. I know I'm not the only person stupid enough to do it, but when you watch a, like a 3D movie, like at the, at the theater, right? you take off the glasses in the middle of the movie just because you want to see what it looks like. Right? Um, but, but, you know, without those 3D glasses, right, the movie you're watching is because it's a blurry mess. It's just this blurry mess. But if you got some good glasses and you put it on, all of a sudden there's this depth to it. There's clarity in it. You see a clear picture. It's even 3D. I can't stand 3D movies, but <laughs> I can appreciate the point. Scripture are the 3D glasses that allows us to make sense of God's actions in our life. It becomes the means for us to be able to see this blurry thing, and through the lens of Scripture, all of a sudden it becomes clear. Ah, I see. I get it. I can have this, this sense of confidence that I know what God is doing, even in a trial, even in a mess, even in a hardship, even in a place of loss, I can make sense of it. There's something broken here that's being restored. Because that's what God does. He fixed broken, thing, broken things. He fix, fixes broken people. Right, but trying to understand God in the absence of God will always be confusing and uncertain. Like watching a 3D movie without the glasses. And that's why I look at that young man who I was having a conversation at Subway with in which I could go from, do you believe in God? And then I could ask the question, then what do you actually believe about God? And his answer becomes confusing. Bizarre. Unclear. Today we read Psalm 77. 
And this is a psalm that's written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was a choir director. He led people into worship and to song. He played a role, even a kind of a pastoral role of leading people theologically to think about things. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 77 with us. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, But this particular psalm is directed to Israel to remember and reflect on who God is. That's the purpose of the psalm. It's the thesis at the core of the psalm. Remember and reflect on who God is and what he has done. It's important. Think through history. See God's faithfulness. Grasp, reclaim, and rejoice in God. But let's take a look together, starting at verse 1. Psalm 77, starting at verse 1, it says, Cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was deep in trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted towards heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended. When my nights were filled with joyful songs. See, I want you to understand the psalm starts with a tragedy. We aren't actually positive what exactly what was going on at this particular time. We don't have a clear life of Asaph or what was going on there. Uh, we have some guesses that it might have been during some particular uh, military Wars going on in the life of Israel, but we just know this. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. The author is in distress, and he's looking for God. He's in distress, and he's looking for God. Now, we've spent some weeks already, and we actually have a few more uh, weeks that we'll talk about just the tragedy and dealing with tragedy and dealing with heartache, and it's times of this, you know, where is God in my life right now? The Psalms deal a lot with that, and this Psalm begins with that. Um, I'm not going to address that today, because there's plenty of other places that we, we have done, it and we will actually do it again, I do more in, in, before the series is over. But I just want you to, to, to pay attention and recognize that this is in a place that this is being... So this is being written during a season in which he, he is in trial. This author is in trial. But pay attention specifically to what happens next. Because, because the author, in his pain, begins to examine himself. Self-reflection. And what that means is he is allowing himself to think, feel, and wonder. He freely allows himself to ask about God. What do I believe about God? Take a look. Continuing in verse 6, it says, I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his suffering, unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion. And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. I think this is the exact place that Lewis was in. Kind of wrestling with some doubts about God. Wondering, what kind of God am I dealing with? In my undergraduate degree, um, I had a professor uh, who, who, who openly talked about his own faith in curious ways, but he would explain and he explored about his, his faith and he would say, I, I believe that God exists. I can't make sense that the universe of God doesn't exist. I don't understand how the universe could be what it is without God. But, but if God does exist, he must be a bit masochistic. He must like pain. Like that was his view of God, right? And so he's, he's wrestling with this idea. The author is wrestling with this idea. Is like God really good? Is his love gone? What's changed in my life? Has God forgotten me? Does he not care about me anymore? Is God no longer loving me anymore? Um, This is what we call emotional doubt. It's called emotional doubt. And there's actually two types of doubt that I would say that, and I I see this often within within Christians. There's two different types of doubt we wrestle with. There's what we call intellectual doubt and what we call emotional doubt. Intellectual doubt deals with strict intellectual questions. 
How can I be sure that God exists? You know, how can I know that God is there even though I don't see him? Right, why can we trust the Bible? Did Jesus, was Jesus really raised from the dead? Right, these are intellectual questions that have intellectual answers. And I actually think these are far easier to work with because there's answers. And we can search and find answers. And we know and there's, 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 there's a lot of good resources out there to help us with that. Emotional doubt is a little bit different. It's our questions or, or feelings or concerns that are really just kind of there out of deep emotions. Often, fear. It's often fear that presses on us to kind of wrestle with a kind of a doubt. And it's usually questions that begin with, what if? What if God doesn't love me? What if I've sinned too much? What if? And even what if God doesn't exist? You're not actually asking whether or not you believe God exists. You're just dealing with, what if he doesn't? Is my life in vain? Is everything I'm doing in vain? It's it's a question that's raised out of fear. And it's you wrestling with that fear. It's an emotional doubt. I find emotional doubt is very hard to deal with. It's easy for us to rationalize with our brain. It's a lot harder for us to rationalize with our heart. It's a lot harder to wrestle with our heart and convince our heart of something. But here's the simplest, the simplest advice for us. Any kind of a doubt, but I think emotional doubt specifically, it's this. Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. I have some doubts. Well, why should I believe those doubts? Why should I give any attention to those doubts? Why should I even give a, a moment of fear or worry to those doubts? I think this is actually what the author is doing here. To kind of reflect on some of those previous verses. Um, he, he's dealing with these questions. But, but, but actually, if you read them, you'll notice there's a hint of sarcasm in those questions. There's a hint of sarcasm in those questions. Has God forgotten me forever? This all-knowing, all-loving God, has he just forgotten about me? Whoop, I'm gone. Has, has his unfailing love stopped? Isn't that by definition a contradiction? Right? But understand, there's this kind of a sarcasm. Like, has God's unfailing love all of a sudden failed? Has he slammed the door shut on compassion? The God of compassion slammed the door shut on compassion. You see the irony in the questions. Kind of, I don't know, sarcasm may not be the right word, but there's this kind of, it's just this, as I said, irony. They are so absolutely not true. And if you doubt those doubts, if you put those questions in perspective, you kind of realize how absurd they really are. Uh, Many Christians undergo um, this regular doubt. These regular questions. Does God love me? Have I sinned too much? Does God really care about me? Especially young Christians. There's actually a lot of of research out there and polls that kind of talk about what are some of the, 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 the thoughts that, that uh, people have at different age groups about God, and especially young, younger people, these are the types of questions that they most often ask. It's not, does God exist? It's not about whether or not the, the Bible is worth reading or trusting. I mean, th- th- those, are, those are good questions, and there are definitely people who are asking those questions, but the questions that's more often wrestled with, with specifically within younger people, it does God actually love me? Do I actually matter to him? Is my future actually is my future actually in his hands? Can I trust that? Is that real? Have I sinned too much? Have I gone too far? Am I too broken? Those are honestly the more um, common questions within the heart of people. Like the author, we should down our doubts. Really. The God who for the sake of you humbly humble, humbled himself took on flesh, endured persecution, pain, punishment, and a brutal death, devouring the weight of your sin, enduring the full consequences of your sin, for the sake of his love for you, just all of a sudden stopped loving you. Really? When you grasp the bigness of God, the bigness of his love, the bigness of his justice, the bigness of his plan, it becomes stupid. To wrestle with these questions like, does, does God really love me right now? Is it really worth praying right now? 
Can I really trust God right now? But this is how Scripture helps us interpret our experiences. Yeah, I'm in pain. Yes, I'm in the season of waiting, longing for the next thing. I can look to Scripture and see countless stories of people who are deep in pain and who had seasons of waiting, who had seasons of wondering. Look to Abraham. It seemed impossible for him to have a son, to have a child. And he, and he had seasons in which he doubted. And it looks like he wrestles with God and he questions God. And he says, God, how can you do this? You can look to Scripture to see stories similar to our own and understand what is the pattern. How has God worked with individuals before? There's a history to God that we can examine. And we can understand there's a pattern of character we can trust. We can look, remember, and recall. God never stopped loving Jesus on the cross. You can imagine that place of the cross. We talked about this last week, but you can imagine that place on the cross enduring that kind of a pain and that kind of a persecution, that kind of a shame. God never stopped loving him on that cross, though. God never forgot about David while he's fleeing from Saul. Spent years of his life running. And yet God had had promised, had anointed him to be king. Years of his life running. God didn't abandon Israel when it was in Egypt. God never just, well, I'm done with them. They're stuck. (laughs) Too bad. Israel's sin was never too great. Even in exile, even in the era of judges, you see this repetitious brokenness within Israel. You can look to the life of Israel and see brokenness and brokenness and sin and disobedience, but it was never enough. It was never enough to push God away. You see, we can look at God's history with humanity and see how it speaks to our own circumstances. And it gives us reason to trust It gives us a picture, a glimpse of who God is, and it helps us define our faith. But I want to look back now at the passage. We're going to be reading the rest of it from 11 through 20. But I want you to look at it and notice this transition, this change that takes place in which now the author is saying, yeah, we have these questions, we have these pains, and we can ask these absurd questions, but let's look at who God has been and let that point us to understanding about who God will be. For us. Starting in verse 11, it says, But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works, O God. Your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked trembled. Where have we seen that before? It's the story of Moses. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along the road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. I I love that particular verse in what is it? uh, Verse 19. A pathway no one knew was there. Doesn't that just describe the kind of a God we worship? He makes pathways for us that no one knew it even existed. It's often what God does. That's what God has done in the history of of his people. It's what God has done in the history of his church. And that is what God has done in the history of, I know, at least my life. It's crazy for me to look back just a year and to think about the things that I was praying for. And to think about how far God has taken me in a year. He took me through roads that I never knew would have existed. He is remarkable. 
in those ten verses or so, the author is calling Israel, leading Israel, directing Israel to remember. Remember who God is. Now, this demonstrates to us how Scripture works, though. It shows us how to interpret our experiences in the light of Scripture. In tragedy, look and remember who God has been. In your life, in the lives of those you know, in the life of your church, and in the life of humanity, remember who God is. He is directing Israel to remember what the Lord your God has done. Remember how he has redeemed us again and again and again. Remember how he parted the Red Seas, how he conquered his enemies, how he led us through a desert. Remember, remember, remember. That word is so important in the Old Testament. Remember. In Hebrew, the word is zakar. Say it with me, zakar. It's a very, very, very important command in the Old Testament. You see it throughout the prophets. They're pointing, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Right, there's this importance of knowing who God is because it directs us the way we live. It directs, us the, it directs the way we think, the way we deal with our problems, the, bit, the way we deal with our sins, the way we deal with our, our pleasures, the way we deal with our life. A proper memory of God just affects everything else we do. Not just in times of trouble, but also in times of blessing as well. The people of Israel have a spiritual autobiography. Their story with God. A testimony of God's saving grace in their life. A testimony of God's love. Of God's faithfulness. It is a history with God that they can point to. And they can say, this, this is who God is. We've seen it too many times to forget. And when they are uncertain, when they get this place of there's fear that's overcoming that emotional doubt that they're wrestling with, has God abandoned me? Has his love ceased? They can look and remember God has been good. And he won't stop now. God won't stop now. It is their spiritual autobiography, their story with God. The Bible is really a spiritual autobiography of God with all mankind. And it's a story that is not yet finished and that we're a part of today. And it's a powerful tool, though. We look at Scripture and we see it's a powerful tool for us to seek, to know, and to learn who God is. But God isn't just a God who worked and did a bunch of stuff 2,000 years ago. Just like 2,000 years ago, I, look, I think about this often. God didn't just work in kings and prophets only. You know, you ever think about the, the random potter or tanner or farmer in Israel? We don't know anything about most of them or any of them really. We just see life through the eyes of David or, or Samuel or the prophets. We can know that these are individuals that have their stories with God, their own stories with God, their own spiritual autobiographies with God. And that's a part of this larger thing that God has been doing with the life of all of Israel. But they had their own stories as well. God is personal. And God wants relationship. God seeks an individual, unique, dynamic relationship with every single one of us so that we all might have our own Spiritual autobiographies with him. For every one of us, we have an opportunity for that autobiography. But as you, st- as you study the Psalms, you see that the author is expressing his struggle. He expresses his doubts about whether God hears him or not. But it is his history, the history of God that roots his thinking into something bigger than himself. It allows him to know God is good. It's this history with God, this capacity for him to be able to remember, recall, Zakar. God is good. In the midst of this wrestling, does God love me? Does God still care about me? Has God forgotten me? He writes in verse 11, he says, But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. I think that word but is very interesting. B-U-T, not B-U-T-T. Right, but B-U-T. It marks an important transition. 
He stops letting his mind run on about his situation, about his circumstances, even his doubts. He says, yeah, my mind is running, but we're going to stop right here. He stops his mind from running in order to remember, to recall. This is what I feel, but this is who you are. This is what you have done. And I might be in a season in which I'm wrestling and in which I'm struggling and I'm frustrated. But I can look at who you are about what you have done. And that gives me the sense of confidence about what you will do. Essentially, he's realigning his thinking in order to put God in a more accurate perspective. That his heart and his mind might interpret his experiences more accurately. And once he does that, there's this complete transition. Once he realigns his heart, there's this complete transition. For the rest of the psalm, he has nothing else to say but praise. He has nothing else to say but a celebration of God. Even in the midst of crisis, the sheer memory of who God is draws him to praise God. It's interesting because I mentioned um, Elie Wiesel, um, but there's another uh, story, another book written from the perspective of somebody who survived the Holocaust, Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meeting, and it's interesting how different he writes about his experience in the Holocaust, about his, about his pursuit of God. Even I mean, even like he wrote another book that just was so intimately tied to that. But it's just so much how much our attitude, what, what our... Uh, mindset is how that allows us to interpret the events that we're in. Um, here's the thing. I think it can be very obvious advice for so many of us. And we've heard it, we've said it, that when our life is a mess, when things are bad, it's obvious, it's good advice for us to trust God and remember. Right? Trust God and remember. And when you're in a hardship, trust God and remember what God has done in the past. Um, that, that's, that's simple advice, I think, for the most part. And I think the thing we more often fail at, and we maybe too often fail at, is remember and refocus on God when things aren't bad. When things aren't bad. When there's no struggles, there's no pains, there's no problems. It is just important for us in those moments to make sure we have that right idea of God in front of us. When, when we are not desperate, crying out to God because we're in some kind of a major crisis, the birth of our child, remember the goodness of God. Um, and here's why. Remembering and reflecting on who God is empowers and encourages us to obedience, to praise, and to thankfulness. Right, the, 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 that act of remembering and reflecting causes us to have the right kind of response to a God. To be obedient. To praise Him. And to thank Him. As we remember and reflect who God is, it leads us, it leads our heart into that action. I have a question. What is your biggest hindrance for you praying more? How, how many of you wish you prayed more in your life? I raise your hand. Don't, don't be that person who's like, I'm too cool to raise my hand in church. Right? Who wants to pray more? Right? What is your biggest hindrance to praying more? Right? How many of you wish you prayed more? But we point to busyness, our absent-mindedness, the, all the distractions, crazy kids, whatever. Right? What, is, what is the biggest hindrance from us praying more? And, and I would argue this, that your biggest hindrance from you praying more is your inadequate or small view of God. And I, and I say that for myself as well. Right? My biggest hindrance from me praying more is my inadequate or my small view of God. If you studied the history of Christian prayer, you would be a fool to belittle prayer. You would simply be a fool to belittle it. I think about Martin Luther. 
right? The man of the Reformation, he says, I have so much to do. I start my day with two hours of prayer. It's like, it's like he, he, could, he couldn't imagine, he couldn't dream of dealing with so much busyness if he wasn't so committed, so fiercely and so rigorously committed to prayer. When you look at Christian history, you find that those who have the greatest impact and influence on the, God, in the kingdom of God, you'll find that their lives were often deeply rooted in prayer. They have some of the most profound things to say about prayer. History shows us prayer is powerful. If you understand how big God is, how great his love is, and how much he wants for you, you'd be a fool to neglect prayer. It'd simply be a fool. You would, you know, you would feel too busy to pray. You never, you'd never forget to pray before walking out the door. You'd never feel too busy to pray. If you had a proper view, if that was just something you were constantly remembering or reflecting, the bigness of who God is, you would never forget to pray before you walked out the door. You'd pray before going into the grocery store that you might find some opportunity to shine light. That you wouldn't sin for a second as someone cut you off in front of the checkout line. You would be so intentional. God, lead me in this simple task of buying some tomato soup. I need you. I don't want to, for a moment, be useless for your kingdom. You would never neglect prayer. If you fully grasp the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's power, his desire for you to pray, you would never neglect prayer. Prayer. You would you would just it's way too important. God values it way too much. I can't. I can't miss the opportunity to pray before vacuuming my house. It would be for, <laughs> it would be like forgetting to eat. Who forgets to eat? I mean, some people do. They're like, oh, I forgot to eat today. I can't forget to eat. I love food way too much. And my and Three hours, I'm like, oh, I'm so hungry. But if I fully grasped prayer, I think I would, I would never allow myself to get more than three hours before taking some time to pray, to reflect, to remember on the greatness and the bigness of God so that I might align my heart so that my actions be true to his word. Right? I think it's that small view of God that makes us think that prayer isn't absolutely essential. It's our small view of God that makes us think that busyness can get more done than devoted prayer. It's our small view of God that makes us think that we have to pray the right kind of way for God to care. It's our small view of God that makes us undervalue what a powerful tool it is. Scripture and history shows us God takes prayer very seriously. We should too. And just like the psalm does, it asks ridiculous questions to doubt its doubts. So we might ask ourselves ridiculous questions to challenge our small views of God. Does God really not care for me to pray about my day right now? Can I really do more with 20 minutes of my time than God can? Do I really think that I am better on my own without the faithfulness of God? Anyone who has any kind of a history with God knows that those are ridiculous questions. They are simply ridiculous questions. The need to remember, to reflect and recall who God is is vital. But not just in our hardships. Not just when things are bad and we just need to have some sense of hope for the next step in our day. It's vital for every single season of our life. Why we fail to take the scripture more seriously? Why do we? Why do we fail? Like the same way we take that we just talk about prayer, right? Why do I not take prayer more seriously? It's the same reason. Why do I not take scripture more seriously? Why am I not committed to understanding the full knowledge of who God is? It is embarrassing to me, simply embarrassing to me that so many Christians know more about Harry Potter, Doctor Who, Star Wars, or Star Trek than they know about scripture. That's just embarrassing. 
if you put those fantasy worlds in perspective and at the same time you put the truth of God in perspective, you realize how crazy it is. That would take so little. I mean, even somebody who, who's, who dedicated their life to studying Scripture, it's really a pretty small attempt when you understand what Scripture is. It's the Word of God to us. That is the result of a small view of God. It's the result of us forgetting to remember and reflect who God really is, who He's been in our history, the history of our church, the history of the world. We had a better understanding of God. I don't think we would ever put our Bibles down. I think every part of the Christian life, the Christian faith, would be taken more seriously, more intensely, more intentionally, if we insisted on remembering who God is regularly. I think we would take prayer more seriously. I think we would, we would take the study of Scripture more seriously, more devoutly. I think we would take the combating of sin more aggressively. I think we would be far more intentional in our evangelism. Our evangelism would be far more calm, more often if we took God's word seriously about what hell is and what it means. I think we would take church family more lovingly. Every aspect of Christianity is going to be taken more intensely, more intentionally, and more seriously if we remember regularly who God is. The biggest hindrance from us thriving in our faith more is our small view of God. Think of like a car alignment. You drive your car more and more and that alignment gets off. I grew up on a, on a dirt road. It's like a mile a dirt road and it, awful bumps, rocks everywhere. And it's like you drive your car once down that road and it never drives the same way. Right? It's just this rough road. But over time, you have to go in and you have to realign your car so it's not driving crookedly. Life has a way of beating us up. It becomes way more necessary for us to realign our perspective so that we drive straight, we walk straight with our God. I am certain, one of the things I'm certain is that when we die, at least I can speak for myself, that when I die and I come face to face with Jesus and I see him and I'm going to wonder something. I'm going to question myself with something. I'm going to ask, why did I not love you more on earth? Why did I not take you more seriously on earth? Why didn't I take your word more seriously on earth? Why why did I worry about the things that I worried about? Why did I get distracted with the things that I got distracted with? Why didn't I love you more on earth? Not, Not because that I'm like, God's going to send me to hell because I didn't love him enough. Again, this isn't about salvation. Instead, I think I'm going to be thinking that because I'm thinking, I'm going to realize, man, you were so good. Why did I not capitalize on something so good? Why didn't I spend two hours of prayer every day of my life? It's crazy I had to do that. Who is God to you? Seriously wrestle with that question right now. Who is God to you? Do you think you have a big view of God? And maybe more importantly, that big view of God is that something that is remembered and reflected again and again and again throughout your day. Is it something you come back to again and again and again throughout your day? Do you maintain an accurate view of who God is? Is it accurate to the history of God with you and mankind? To who God has been in Scripture? Or maybe right now your view of God is just a little bit too small. And maybe right now you need to take time to remember who God is. Or discover or rediscover who God is. To realign that perspective. To remember so that we, we might take prayer more seriously, evangelism more seriously, our church more seriously, the study of scripture more seriously. We're not going to look at our neighbors who don't know Jesus and be apathetic to it that we're going to take those very seriously, that Jesus looks at that lost person and says, that's someone I love. Would you do something about it? I find that I have to constantly remind myself of who God is, to constantly call myself to remember because I so easily forget 
Life has a way of making me question God. Life has a way of making me forget God. Like this psalm, I wrestle with silly thoughts and I have to ground myself to remember what has God done, who he is, and what has he promised, and what my experience has been because it gives me faith to what my experiences will be. I hope and I pray that we can be people who are always eager, ready, and able to accurately describe God. Because that's a regular rhythm in our life of remembering who he is. That we're regularly recalling, bringing ourselves to recall and remember who God is. And it's going to be easy for us to then recommunicate that. To give our elevator pitch about who God is. So that we would not only be more effective, though, in sharing our faith, but that we might be more effective in living it out. Take time every day to remember who God is. Let's pray. Father God, I ask once again, Lord, that you take the inadequacy of my words of this message, the places where I have failed, and preparing and then delivering, God, that you would take that extra step and that you would be the voice to every single one of us, that we would all hear your word and that it would speak directly to our hearts. God, that we might just be broken so that we might love you more deeply, more aggressively, more fiercely. Father God, thank you for your commitment to us. That even though we are such forgetful people, God, you are so persistent with us. God, I thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you for this community who comes week after week to praise you, to celebrate you, to honor you with our lives. Lead us, God, to be people who take prayer more seriously, who take scripture more seriously, God, who take you more seriously. God, you are worthy of every 